0: We're we're going to hopefully enjoy our time together as we look begin to look at the doctrine of the Trinity. We've spent the last couple of weeks looking at the doctrine of God, looking at his <clears throat> his attributes in particular last week, and, and understanding those attributes in terms of unity, a simplicity, divine simplicity, which means God is not composed of parts. God is is not the summation of his individual distinguishable attributes, and yet Uh, but rather God is pure act. So we could say, we ought to say God doesn't possess love, he doesn't do love, he isn't characterized by love, he is love. He is his mercy, he is his wrath, he is his holiness. God is not divisible into those component parts. And today, as we look at the Trinity, have that thing in mind, that, that idea in mind, the oneness, the unity of God, because so many of the errors that have come historically with respect to the Trinity are an attempt to demystify the Trinity. Because what we, what the scriptures teach very plainly is that God is one and God is three. And in our finite minds, we cannot, we cannot reconcile those fully. We can state them as true. But we cannot fully comprehend the oneness of God and the threeness of God at one time. We will either take the one God and then divide him into parts and make the Father, Son, and Spirit various parts. Or, and we, end up, or we end up with a tritheism, where we end up with three different gods. Of course, the Muslims accuse Christians of being tritheists. They don't comprehend the Father, Son, and Spirit as one God in Three persons. So as we think about this today, uh, have that in mind. Kind of fix those two anchor points in your mind. That we must hold on to the oneness of God, and we must maintain his threeness, and admit up front, we're not going to be able to fully reconcile that in our minds. We're not going to be able to fully comprehend the incomprehensible. But let's go to this God, our, our triune God, and ask Him for His help. He's made Himself known to us, and yet we are dependent upon His Spirit to work in us, to give us that illumination that's necessary for us to understand what He's given to us to know. And also the wisdom we need to, uh, to stop when it's appropriate to stop, not to go beyond what is written, not to go beyond what we are told about God into vain imaginations and speculations. Let's pray and ask for our Lord's help. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have indeed made yourself known as Father, Son, and Spirit. Would grant to us the grace of humility to, to confess those things that you have given to us about yourself and yet avoid the temptation either to recast you in our own image or in some condensed form or idea that we can comprehend, or to speculate about things that you have not said. Or will you grant to us that that humility? Grant to us the wisdom, and the careful thought that is necessary to understand you as you've made yourself known. Father, we ask this thing, these things, in Christ's name. Amen. BB Warfield, the Presbyterian theologian and pastor made this remark. Uh, as we approach the, the doctrine of the Trinity, we, we're going to have to use language that's that's not in the Scriptures. And there have been many throughout history who have found fault with that, who've said, well, we we, we ought not use words that are not in the Scriptures. If you've heard uh, R- Richard Baxter, for example, uh, wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, he was one of the Puritans. Uh, there were a number of things that became errant, uh, aberrant with Baxter's theology, but, but one of them in particular was he, was he was a Biblicist, meaning he refused to use words that were not contained in the Scriptures. So when it came to the doctrine of the Trinity, even the word Trinity, he refused to use. And it's a very helpful word, it's a very helpful concept. Listen to how B.B. Warfield says it. He says, the term Trinity is not a biblical term. We don't have to apologize for that. That's okay. The, word, the term Trinity is not a biblical term, and we are not using biblical language when we define what is expressed by it as the doctrine that there is one, only, and true God. But in the unity of the Godhead, there are three co-eternal and co-equal persons, the same in substance, but distinct in subsistence. A doctrine so defined can be spoken of as a biblical doctrine only on the principle that the sense of Scripture is Scripture. And the definition of a biblical doctrine in such unbiblical language can be justified only on the principle that it is better to preserve the truth of Scripture than the words of Scripture. The doctrine of the Trinity lies in Scripture in solution. When it is crystallized from its solvent, it does not cease to be scriptural, but only comes into clearer view. For you chemists, among us, that might be a helpful illustration. <clears throat> the doctrine of the Trinity lies in scripture in solution. You know what it means to be in solution it means you've taken something solid and you've dissolved it into some sort of solvent. that might be water. it might be you know if you use I'm a woodworker and shellac this this pulpit and this table we're, we're finished with shellac. Well shellac is a natural byproduct that's dissolved into denatured alcohol. So it's a solid, it becomes dissolved, it becomes in solution. When it is crystallized from its solvent, it does not cease to be scriptural, but only comes into clearer view. With that in mind, I'm going to read for us, read together, back to our confession of faith in chapter 2 of God the Trinity, of God the Holy Trinity. I'm going to read paragraph 3. And here again, we're, we're using words that are, that are carrying the, the freight, if I can say it that way, carrying the weight of what God has revealed about him in Scripture, about himself in Scripture. But we are synthesizing those various passages of Scripture, putting them in solution, as it were so that we can understand and articulate accurately what the Bible actually says about the nature of God, His divine essence. So listen, listen to the words that are used. And again, this is, where, this is one of the, those paragraphs in particular that a paraphrase might be helpful, but we ought not to depend upon a paraphrase of the confession ultimately or finally. We, we need some of the technical language that's here. Paragraph 3 reads in this way, In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, all infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being, but distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. That last statement is one of my favorite phrases in our confession. The doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon Him. And, and what, we're, what, what our, our fathers in the faith were confessing here is this is not a mere academic exercise. We are going to have to work hard mentally. We're going to have to sort of gird up our loins, so to speak, and, and, and labor to understand these things. But it's worth it. it it's worth it uh, to, to begin to understand as a Christian the nature of the Trinity, the relation of the relations of the Father, Son, and Spirit to the redemptive work that our Triune God is accomplishing in us will become a wonderful balm to your soul, a great encouragement to you. There are some words here, as B.B. Warfield said, we're, going to, we're using some words that are not biblical terms. In fact, he even says they're unbiblical. By that, he doesn't mean that they're contrary to the Scriptures. You ever heard somebody say that? This is an unbiblical. It's, it's helpful at that point to ask what do you mean? By, by unbiblical, do you mean it's just simply not contained in the Scriptures? Or do you are you saying that it's contrary to the Scriptures? We might say, well, this microphone is unbiblical. Okay, what do we mean by that? Do, do we mean that when Jesus went out on the boat and he, and he used the, the natural acoustics of the Sea of Galilee to preach to the people, or when he stood up on a, or he up on a hill and taught, that he didn't use a microphone? Well, that's, that's true. wasn't a possibility. Do you mean by that it's, it's contrary to the Scriptures? It is unlawful or sinful to use a microphone. Hopefully, I don't think anyone would, would take that, that view. But it's, it's helpful for us to ask the question. If you hear somebody say, or you find yourself saying, well, that's unbiblical, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And so Warfield has, is saying, in a sense, unapologetically, that the language that we're going to use to describe the triune God is unbiblical, meaning it's not found in the Scriptures. But we do not mean by that that it's contrary to the Scriptures. In fact, it's necessary it's necessary for us to preserve the truth of the Scripture. So here are the, the identities of the Trinity, is what we see here, given to us in this, this first sentence. In this divine and infinite being, remember we saw back in paragraphs one, or two, 1 and 2 that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself in paragraph 2. In paragraph one, we see that He is only He is one only living and true God, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passion. So paragraph three begins with in that being, the one that we've spent two paragraphs describing, in that divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences. Now, if you were to lay the Second London Confession, side-by-side with the Westminster, you'll notice a, a slight change in that first phrase. It's not a change in doctrine, but they're wanting to sharpen the pencil with just a slightly finer point to avoid a possibility of error. In the Westminster Confession, it says, in this divine and infant being there are three persons. When we sing, holy, 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 we sing and we confess in song that God exists in three persons. God in three persons, blessed Trinity, right? Is persons wrong? Not at all. But here's the error they're wanting to avoid. In, in the Greek language, that idea of persona, that, one, that, that word comes over into English, it was used in the theater to describe someone who put on a mask. What What error do you think might come if the idea is of three personas. Modalism. Exactly. Exactly. So that's not, exa- not at all what Westminster confesses. Far, far from that. But the idea of a subsistence, it's, it's from the Latin word substantia, it is an indication of a particular being or existence, an individual instance of a given essence. So it's, it's it's just a slightly more technically precise term. It's not different in any way in, in its substance or in its teaching, its doctrine from Westminster. So, if, if you happen to be comparing them side by side at some point, uh, don't don't get tripped up by that. Don't think that the the Baptists made a substantial change or, or a, a a qualitative change. It's it's just a a, a tweak uh, to help hedge against some some particular errors. The other word that we need to look at is, is the Latin word substantia. Substantia means the substance. I'll give you another technical word, stuff. How's that for a good technical theological word? Stuff. It, it's the underlying stuff. It's the material or spiritual reality of a thing. That which exists. Uh, it can indicate the formal and material reality held in common by all members of a genus as well as the formal and material reality. So it's it's the it's the substance, it's the it's the the the, the um, essential property of something. Then there's the other word that we need to look at that, that's used here, or the English equivalent of it used is used, when we see the each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The the Latin word, "essentia," it's the essence. It's it's the whatness or the isness of a being. That which makes the the being precisely and and actually what it is. So what we find here, as I'll read the rest of the paragraph, what we find is an emphasis on both, as I said at the beginning, both unity and triunity, and we have to hold those intention. Don't think. That if you don't underst- if you can't fully comprehend that, that somehow you've missed something, you won't be able to. Uh, remember last week uh, looking at, at the quote from from Augustine that said, "If if if you come away thinking you've comprehended God, it's not actually God you've comprehended; it's something you've imagined in your own mind." So, with those terms kind of introduced, let's let's start back over with paragraph three. In this divine and infinite being, there are three subsistences, the Father, the Word, or Son, and Holy Spirit, of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. So see, here's here's that's the concept. The, the, the unity, the entire divine essence, and yet that essence undivided. The Father is of none. When God declares to Moses, I am. God is of none. He is uncreated. He is self-existent. Neither begotten nor proceeding. And these are, these are technical words, but they're helpful for us to know. The son is eternally begotten of the father. The Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, and I'm going to explain those terms a little bit more here in just a moment all here's the term of unity again all infinite here's the the essence undivided. Father is not begotten nor proceeding the Son is begotten of the Father, the Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son, and yet all unified infinite, without beginning, therefore but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. See, it is right for us to think of God as three persons or three subsistences, but not three essences, not three beings. One essence, one being, three persons or three subsistences. However, here's the, remember, we have the oneness and the threeness that we have to hold together. The oneness, the threeness is distinguished by several peculiar relative properties and personal relations, which, doctrine of the Trinity, is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him. So what are these peculiar relative properties and personal relations? Well, that's, that's what had come immediately before that. So let's think, first of all, at the commonalities. Again, oneness and threeness. Those are the two things we want to hold together. The oneness. What are the con- commonalities? Father, Son, and Spirit. They share the same spiritual substance, the same essay, the same essence, the same whatness, the same isness. They're not of three different kinds of stuff. Again, technical language again. One, essence. So they share that same common spiritual substance. They share infinity. They are not divided in nature or being. So as we look back at paragraphs one and two, everything that is said about God in terms of him being immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most
1: absolute, and so on. Which person do those words describe? All three, in unity, uh, and, and yet preserving
0: their threeness, their tri-unity. So we, we ought not to say that certain attributes apply to the Son, but not the Spirit, or certain attributes apply to the Father, but not the Spirit, or the Spirit, but not the, the Son. Each, each person of the Trinity is of the same divine, the whole divine essence, and yet that essence is undivided. In the Nicene Creed, one of the, the foundational creeds of the early Christian church, dealing with some of these very issues, the Council of Nicaea was dealing with a heresy that said that Jesus isn't really God. He might have the appearance of God, but he isn't truly and fully divine. Listen to the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages. God from God, light from light, true God. From true God, begotten, not made. See, unlike Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons or other cults that say Jesus was the first of the created beings. No, Jesus is infinite, he's eternal. There was no beginning, there was no end. So if you're having a conversation with, uh, with the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, you can take them to Revelation and show how the term Alpha and Omega. Is they will say, well, that b- belongs to God the Father, to Jehovah. But by the time you get to chapter 7 or 8, it's very clear that Jesus is saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, meaning of the same essence, of the same stuff as the Father. Through Him all things were made. Now see, we just confess that God, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And yet here we also confess that it is through the Son all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. You you hear the language from the Apostles' Creed, don't you? He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds, here's the language, proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father And the Son is adored and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. So we we see here how this, this language in our confession and and Westminster and the Way, all the reformed confessions mirror very closely the language of Nicaea because there were some things that were articulated here that were very important about the full divinity the the, the shared essential essence nature of the godhead god the father god the son god the spirit are of the same essence co-eternal, God of God, light of light. That helps us preserve the oneness, the unity of God. And yet, in the scriptures, we can distinguish what our, our confession refers to as several peculiar relative properties and personal relations. Relative properties and personal relations. Relations. What do, what do we think about these? What do we? What can we say about these? These relative properties. The properties are Father, Son, and Spirit, which belong to the Trinity individually, without dividing the essence of the Trinity. Is your is your brain hurting yet? It, it, it should be, because it. it we are seeking to express the unfathomable the incomprehensible what we can confess about the father is that he is unbegotten that's that's a, a peculiar relative property of the father what about the the peculiar relationship personal relationship or, per, or personal relations of the father, well, he is said to be in relation to the son and spirit by way of paternity. he is father in relation to the son and the spirit, not because the father existed and then he made the son and made the spirit, but because what we've given what's given to us in the scriptures is this personal relation is he exists from eternity as father to the son and to the spirit. We cannot explain much further than that. We can confess it's true, but we cannot fully express
1: that. You turn with me to First Corinthians chapter eight. First Corinthians chapter eight. You'll notice this is one of the footnotes here in, in paragraph three.
0: <clears throat> Paul is, is here talking about the futility of idols, and and even the the ability of a Christian to be able to eat food that was previously offered to an idol. This is what he says, beginning in verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol is no real existence, and that there is no God but one. See, he's expressing a unity here in the Godhead for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth as indeed there are many gods and many lords and the, and I'm reading from the ESV and it uses the scare quotes there for gods and lords yet for us there is one god the father from whom all things and for whom we exist and one lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we Exist. See, the Father is self-existent. His peculiar relative property is paternity. His peculiar relations is, with respect to the Son and the Spirit, He is Father. The Son, on the other hand, His peculiar relative property is sonship. Begottenness is his relation to the Father. He relates to the Father as Son. Turn me
1: to John chapter 1. John's Gospel. And there are other places we, we could turn, but these are some of the clearer, more succinct
0: uh, statements about the Godhead. In, in chapter 1, Verse 14, the Word of God tells us this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John here expresses this peculiar personal relation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word who's become flesh, His personal relation is as a son to the Father. The the Latin word that you you may see if if you read in systematic theologies, you'll see the the word philatio, meaning son. It's a sonship or, or a begottenness. And again, begottenness does not mean made or created, it means from. And then with respect to the spirit. We see that the Spirit is described to us as proceeding, or spiratio. If you're still in John, you can turn over to the 15th chapter.
1: John 15, verse 26.
0: Jesus here, speaking to his disciples says in verse 26 of John 15, when, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So we have a clear statement from Jesus, the Spirit proceeds from the Father, and then also the statement from Jesus is, I will send so in terms of peculiar personal properties and relations of the Spirit, he is said to proceed from both the Father and the Son. And there was no no small controversy throughout church history and even somewhat of a, of a split between the East and the West over whether the Son or whether the Spirit proceeds from the Father only or from the Son and the Spirit. Uh, you'll see in our confession, we we don't straddle the fence on this issue. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and to the Son. Uh, I won't get into all of the the technical minutia, uh, mainly because it's above my head. Um, but it's it's uh, I, I think th- in my mind the matter was was settled, and I think John makes this clear. Uh, the words of Christ here make this clear it proceeds from the father and the son sins, which is a procession. So we can say the spirit, personal relations and relative peculiar relative property. The spirit is 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 known as procession from the Father and from the Son. So we have these 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 properties. So let's kind of think back through what what, what is confessed here in paragraph three. So in this divine and infinite being and, and have in your mind that phrase is is shorthand or a condensed form of what we looked at in all of chapters 1 or paragraphs 1 and 2 in this divine and infinite being there are three subsistences persons is okay subsistences is is slightly more precise but you can also in your own mind there's god in three persons blessed trinity that that's perfectly fine the father the word or son and holy spirit of one substance one one Stuff one essence, power and eternity, each in each person, or each
1: peculiar relative property, or each personal relation, having the whole divine essence.
0: So the Father, most of the time we don't have to convince someone that the Father has the whole divine essence. But throughout history it's been a matter of no small controversy to say the Spirit, that the Son possesses the whole divine essence. The Holy Spirit is not an it, it's not a thing, it's not a force.
1: It is a person who possesses the whole divine essence. So then the question comes, practically speaking, to whom should we pray? to the Father only? Or do we pray to the Son? May we pray to the Spirit? The answer is yes. And think back to the, the, the Nicene Creed.
0: as I read just a few moments ago with respect to the Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified means we worship the three persons of the Trinity and God in his unity. So it is is right for us to pray, call upon the Holy Spirit, particularly to give us illumination, to give us comfort, to give us power, to give us the, 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 the divine help that we need. And in God's wisdom, he has sent his Spirit Father and the Son have sent the Spirit for that, to that end. Back to the language of the Confession. The Father is of none. And again, here are these peculiar, several peculiar relative properties and relations. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. and We can add in parentheses, but not proceeding. He is begotten not made, but begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. All, here's the unity, all infinite, without beginning. Therefore, but one God. This is a direct frontal attack of of, of repudiation of Arianism, of, of many of the contemporary cults like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses that say that God the Father is eternal, but God the Son had a beginning. All infinite. All without beginning. All are but one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Doesn't mean God isn't, in a sense, distinguished but not divided. Two different D words. One is good and one's bad, and we refer to, 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 to making distinctions. We can dis- make distinctions within the Godhead, but not divisions. God is one of one essence, of one stuff, of one substance, but God can be distinguished. and the scriptures do make those distinctions with respect to peculiar relative properties and personal relations. I'm going to close with a quote from. Dr. R.C. Sproul, it's a a longer one, but uh, bear with me. In the formula of the Trinity, the church bows to sacred scripture, honoring both the unity of God and the distinctions. Uh, I, I love Dr. Sproul because he's very precise. Honoring both the unity of God and the distinctions among the persons of the Godhead. The formula made use of terms such as person, subsistence, hypostasis in an attempt to get at the unity and the distinction with god within god himself in addition to affirming the deity of jesus without which deity it would be blasphemous for him to be an object of worship in the church the holy spirit is also described in the scriptures in terms of divine attributes he meaning the spirit is omnipotent he is omniscient he is infinite he is eternal He is actively involved in the divine work of creation, and in conjunction with his being the author of life and human intelligence, he is active in empowering the work of Christ in redemption. We see in the Bible that the work of creation involves the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, just as the work of redemption includes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are testified to uniformly by the Scriptures, as being divine. They are not three gods, because the unity of God remains axiomatic in the monarchianism of sacred Scripture. You may know what monarchianism is? It just means the oneness of God. We end up using a lot of technical words, but that just means the oneness of God. And, and we go back to Deuteronomy 6, the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. And yet we discover more fully in the New Testament, something that was in the Old Testament but but veiled to some degree. We see that God is three. Not three with respect to his essence. It's not three, three natures not three essences, not three beings, but distinguished in three persons or subsistences. uh, Sproul continues, The church still declares that the Lord our God is one. He is one being, though we must distinguish within that one being the subsistences of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So here's a faithful Presbyterian brother using... Those words interchangeably persons and subsistences, so don't don 't get as I mentioned earlier don 't get hung up on on that don 't don 't uh, think that the Baptists have departed from some way materially or or, or objectively from the doctrine shared by all those who 've gone before us. Uh, we share the same doctrine. Um, I, I said I would would close with that, change my mind. look back at, at Ephesians. <clears throat> I want you to notice. The, the, the very important uh,
1: reality of the Trinity with respect to our redemption. Again, we
0: might be tempted to set aside the doctrine of the Trinity or say, just kind of leave that to the experts, leave that to the theologians, leave that to the, go, to the guys in seminary. But it is necessary for us to recognize, in the words of our confession, this is the foundation of our Comfortable dependence upon God. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, this is one of those classic Pauline sentences that takes up an entire paragraph. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He, this is God the Father, Chose us in Him, which is Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He, and this is the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He, the Father, has blessed us in the beloved, which is the Son. In Him, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Do you hear the the, the Trinitarian necessity in our salvation? Here is the Father, electing from eternity, by by the wisdom and purpose of God the Father, the Son has come and accomplished our redemption and we can say that it is the Spirit who applies that redemption to us. And yet, in all of these, we see God distinguished according to his personal relations and relative properties, and yet undivided. So even when
1: we see the work of God the Father, let's not divide God with respect to his personal relations
0: of peculiar relative properties, we can say God the Father has elected, but but God is undivided. It is Christ who accomplished the work of redemption. It is the second person of the Trinity, who as the Son assumed to himself, took upon human nature, and died upon the cross. But that's why Paul can say that it is in... in, um, Acts chapter 20, speaking to these same Ephesian elders, said that you you serve the flock of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Such is the unity of the Trinity, that sometimes even the scriptures, it is is said that that one has accomplished something that all three has done.
1: And then, of course, we see here that it is the Spirit of God who applies that work of redemption to us? He is
0: the guarantee of our inheritance. He is—he is the surety for God's people. So let's—I will generally close with that. But but as you, uh, as as you study more in the Trinity, study more of the Trinity, as you read through the Scriptures, both the Old and New Testaments, but it's, it's more clear in the New Testament, you will see more and more, and and hopefully to the delight of your soul, the work of the triune God in not only creating all things, but in the work of redemption, both you personally and for the whole body of Christ, the Father, Son, and Spirit, working in unity and yet in Trinity for the accomplishment of our salvation. We'll look next week <clears throat> a little bit more at the uh, kind of flesh out a little bit more some of this this the threeness of God while maintaining and holding fast to the unity of God. And we'll also look more carefully at that statement about our comfortable dependence upon God. Um, such a wonderful uh, delightful truth on which we can meditate together.
1: Let's pray. We'll take a Would you have a comment, Matthew?
2: Yeah.
1: By negation, there is. And so we saw in the Nicene Creed, for example. Listen to how it's it's asserted
0: and then negated. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of the of the Father, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, Light from Light, True God from True God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. So it's it's a confession that that there is a begottenness. Uh, we're told that in the scriptures that that that. that Christ in relation to the Father, is begotten, and yet we're quick to add not made doesn't mean he was created doesn't mean he began doesn't mean it was a a place in time when the Son came to be he is consubstantial, meaning he is of the same essence, the same stuff as the Father from all of eternity, so with respect to a A fuller definition of begottenness. It's primarily in the sense of negation. It does not mean that he was made, and yet this is is the the word that Holy Scripture has given to us to describe the relation, the, the personal relation of
2: the Son to the Father. Exactly exactly
1: right you, yeah, you, you end up with
0: in order to 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 be faithful to the scriptures, even using their translation, you end up with two gods and and you they would certainly deny that um, they deny the divinity of Christ entirely, but you could also take them to, to the book of of the revelation and show them how it is it is. The Ancient of Days, as God the Father described as the Alpha Omega, and then as the, as the Revelation progresses, Jesus takes that name to Himself. So, Jesus cannot be a faithful prophet, as they contend. Uh, he cannot be a created Son of God, and then be a rival to God by claiming the titles that belong to God alone. Yeah, Amen. All right. Our gracious God and Father... We we are thankful that your Word has given us this perfect, sure guide. And even when we cannot comprehend all that you have said to us, we pray for the grace to believe it. We pray for the grace to confess it as true and trustworthy. We pray for the grace to worship you as you really are. Is God in three persons? And yet, one blessed, unified God will you guard us from error? will you guard us from a presumption that says we are we are not of uh, of this cult or that cult that that therefore we are we don't have those errors will you, will you help guard us, our minds, our thoughts, our words uh, we thank you for the, the clarity that we find in the ancient creeds, and our confession of faith, which which helps to guard us as, as we meditate upon those very words, words that were expressing concepts that are found in Your Word, and yet the words themselves are not. We, we pray that You'd give us wisdom and understanding to hold fast uh, to the faithfulness of Your Word as declared to us. Father, we, we pray that You will bless us now as we give ourselves to to the blessed duty of worshiping You. May we come with hands held open to heaven to receive
1: from You Your divine blessings. We ask this in Christ. Amen.